As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Joining us now, I'm pleased to say, is Jan Hatzius, the Chief Economist and Head of Global Economics and Markets Research at Goldman Sachs. Jan, coming off the back of a weekend where you actually cut the outlook for U.S. growth. So let's start there with a why. We cut the outlook because there was a, there's been a very material tightening in financial conditions over the last couple of months. Our financial <laughs> conditions index is up by more than 200 basis points from the end of 2021. And we think that that's going to keep growth below trend over the next several quarters, over the next year or so. So we're now looking for only one and a quarter percent growth this year on a fourth quarter to fourth quarter basis, and then one and a half percent next year. And that, I think that's needed to create a little bit more capacity in the labor market in particular, alongside an improvement in labor force participation because we have this huge gap between labor demand and labor supply. We've got 11 and a half million open positions and 6 million unemployed workers. And that gap needs to shrink, as Chair Powell has said. Jan, um, I, I want to talk, there's like eight ways to go here, but I do want to talk about sub 2% GDP. And one of the partitions here is domestic final sales or a view of the American economy versus export-import dynamics on the other side. And your colleague, Zach Pandel, then can throw in dollar dynamics as well. Is your call a foreign call or is it a domestic call? It's really a domestic call mostly. That's the main uh, driver here. I mean, First quarter had a lot of noise in the in the trade right. statistics. I think some of that is going to unravel, but I think it's really about higher interest rates, lower stock prices, somewhat wider credit spreads, and to some degree the appreciation of the dollar. But all of those d different drivers, which are primarily going to impinge on domestic demand, slowing growth to a, a much lower pace. Do you see any indications at this time that the labor economy is easing? Is it in the microdata that you look at every week? Not yet in the data, no. I think there are some signs in the more anecdotal reports, company-by-company company reports, some of the tech firms scaling back hiring, yeah. lowering open positions in the hard data that get published by the Labor Department, not yet. Jan, how high does unemployment have to get to reach that sort of spare capacity that you're looking for in the labor market? I actually don't think that the unemployment rate has to rise a lot. What needs to happen, I think, is that companies bring down open positions. So the path that the Fed's 
targeting is to slow growth to a pace that is slow enough to for companies to shelve some of their expansion plans and bring down some of their open positions, but not so slow that you start getting large numbers of layoffs. So we're expecting a little bit of an increase in the unemployment rate from the you know three and a half percent range to the three, three and three quarter percent range, but not a large increase. Do you think that basically Michelle Meyer was correct when she was talking about the ability for consumers to lever up, even if their incomes aren't keeping pace with the with the inflation uh, rate right now, and that basically the Fed has to go a lot faster even uh, still than, the, than people seem to think in order to slow that? Otherwise, we're going to get even more overheating. Well, I think, you know, borrowing is going to be a short term uh, driver of spending. And I think has been to some degree, if you look at the consumer credit numbers over the last couple of months, there clearly has been some, you know, re-leveraging to some degree. But I don't think that that's going to be a lasting kind of, uh, you know, support for, for spending. So I, I think mm-hmm. consumer spending is going to be relatively slow. Income is going to be quite weak in 2022. We're looking for only 0.5% real income growth on a fourth quarter to fourth quarter basis. On an annual average basis, actually significantly weaker than that. But even on a Q4 to Q4 basis, only 0.5. And I think that's going to keep spending pretty soft. Long ago and far away, there was Dudley and McKelvey and this young whippersnapper from Germany. What was his name? I think it was Hotsius is what it was. And you codified MEW, mortgage equity withdrawal. Let me cut to the chase, Jan. When does the housing market break? Well, MEW is actually a very important issue again, not as important, I think, as going into the 08 crisis, but there has been a pickup in mortgage equity withdrawal Mm -hmm. over the last year. And you've had this increase in consumer credit uh, as well, you know, similar kind of dynamic. This supports spending in in the short term, but ultimately is not going to be a sustainable source of big increases in spending. So builds in a slowdown sort of down the road. And I think, you know, when the housing market slows, of course, is going to determine the timing of that. We haven't really seen significant slowing in the in the right. hard data yet. I do expect that mortgage rates are up even more than 10-year treasury yeah, I yields. I just ask, because Farrell wants to know, should he buy in June or July? I'm not going to give uh, uh, him okay. advice on that. Uh, that, I think, is probably not not so advice I was after, Jan. Don't it's, worry. That's too long-term for Jan. Jan, let's finish here just quickly. What's the biggest risk right now, to your view? Well, I think the the Fed is still trying to bring down, you know, slow, slow the economy, slow uh, employment, and bring down open positions because they're still worried about inflation being too high. And... It will be well above target for the foreseeable future. I do think it's going to come down. But if it doesn't come down quickly enough, we can see, you know, still significantly higher rates. Our call at the moment is three to three and a quarter percent for the funds rate. We've stuck with that. And it's, you know, fairly close to market pricing. But I think the risk case is that, uh, you know, they have to do more. And that then also raises the risk of a hard landing. Not our baseline, but that would be the risk. The upside risk to rates, clear and present. Jan, thank you. As always, Jan Hatzius there of Goldman Sachs. We are thrilled to bring you now someone hardwired to the retail 
of America and particularly the aspiration that all of us are guilty of. Dana Telsey is chief executive officer, chief research officer at Telsey Advisory Group and lives New York retail truly like no one I know. Dana, I was absolutely crushed at the price rise on the Celine hoodie sweatshirt. The, the, the men's, it's got the Celine thing on it. I thought it should be in my closet. I mean, there it was. It was 800 bucks, and all of a sudden it's $990. Everything's going up in price, right? It has. We're seeing price increases, and Tom, thank you for having me, price increases across the board on many different categories, especially on luxury goods, the consumer is buying. And we're seeing a wide range of consumers buying in terms of demographics and age group. The brand matters and they find ways to pay for it. But what is so important here from the days of you at I, I, I Bear Stearns where you're doing you know channel shops and going through Abercrombie and Fitch is the way we buy this stuff is fundamentally unchanged. How important for you and Joe Feldman is a firm is PayPal credit, is the access of get that Celine sweatshirt now and pay for it later. That's sea change. It is a sea change. It's very important. And frankly, it lifts the sales. And also the companies are learning what to produce because of the options that they have, both buying in-store and buying online. The world today is more integrated than it ever has. And we're watching sell-through, we're watching influencers, we're watching Instagram in order to pick up what are the trends that are going to mean something on Main Street. So what are you expecting right now uh, in about 10 minutes time in these retail sales numbers, Dana? I mean, I think April hopefully should be a little bit better. We saw gas prices come in a little bit. We still have an environment, like was mentioned earlier, a shift to services from goods. We're expecting a big summer season of vacation. The other thing is you have 2.6 million weddings occurring this year. On average, people spend around $430 every time they go to a wedding. So you'll still have some of that good spending. April should have been a little bit better, but inflation is a headwind. And that is in every aspect that companies are dealing with it. Dana, as people change the way they pay for luxury goods, do we have to change the way we think about who's shopping there? Typically, we think of the high-income earner and the luxury goods, and those two are so closely tethered. I just wonder, Dana, if that's changed now over the last couple of years. I think it has. I think you've gotten the millennials and the Gen Zs, and I think the brand awareness, the collaborations that have been done is bring, making these luxury brands younger and younger while still keeping the ethos and the interest of the higher income demographic. So Dana, as interest rates go up, can they maintain the buy-in? I see the lines outside of the luxury stores in Soho. We all do. We can spot the average age in that line as well. What's gonna happen here? It does not look good as you look further forward. I mean, we need the Chinese to come back and spend. Right now, you were seeing some tourism happen with Europeans coming to the US. We'll need that Asian traveler, but the product innovation is key. We've seen what demand can be when newness is out there. You've seen it from LVMH with their brands. You look at what's happening with Tiffany's. You've seen what it's ha- what's happening with Balenciaga. There are, there are luxury brands that matter to these consumers. There's a bigger issue underpinning John's question, and it's an important one, which is at what point will higher borrowing costs really matter, especially as more consumers do start to lever up in order to keep their purchasing at the same levels as before inflation took off to the way that it is now? I think overall, the lower income consumer at the lower end, obviously they're struggling. The middle income consumer continues to get some higher wages and those wages are allocated. It may not be allocated to goods, but allocated to services. Above that mid-tier is the question mark if there's a pullback given what debt levels could look like. 
Dana, your thoughts thoughts, and Joe Feldman's work on Amazon has been great, but I'm going to editorialize and say Amazon's been a train wreck. Your thoughts on how they turn it around? I mean, there's work to be done there. Amazon, the narrative that was two and three years ago that Amazon is going to take over retail and the consumer spend isn't there. It definitely cost more to be able to ship than ever before. Everyone basically expected what was happening online sales to continue the growth. And we're seeing that shift now. We're seeing the shift of a return to stores from digital sales that's helping the physical store retailer. And frankly, digital sales are moderating. Balenciaga is a brand I just don't get, TK. What is Balenciaga about? You know, I, to be honest, the oversized um, shirts, never the been oversized in the store. shoes. I just. But, you know, and Dana will be dazzled by this. I actually watched a little short video on the guy, Balenciaga. Yeah, how did that go? He went, he went bankrupt like three times. And every time he came out, he, he revolutionized what he did out of Spain. Sure. And it was with always with drama, John. And I guess that's what it is. I don't get it. Dana, I'm convinced that in a few years' time, they come out of the head office and say, got you. This was all a joke, but you bought it anyway. I just don't get it. I think one of the things they do, you can go by their windows like I did last night. They're putting things in their windows that, whether it's big inflated balloons in the, in the look of a person, they're basically creating that something you need to see. And frankly, there's a difference between heritage and authentic luxury, like what you have with the quality of the goods at Hermes, and there's a difference with what's happening now that is in demand because of limited supply. That's what some of the right. brands are doing. Dana, what does your universe do when we come off China lockdown? Uh, the luxury goods universe will do very well, but also don't forget what China supplies. Every manufacturer is looking to diversify their supply okay. and be able to get the goods is key. Brilliant. Dana, thank you. Thank awesome. You. Dana Tausi of Tausi Advisory John, Group. do you know that these sweatshirts, I thought if you bought a luxury sweatshirt, it didn't shrink in the wash. I got yeah, that yeah, so wrong. One thing you've got to watch out for, Tom, is if the other half <laughs> takes said, said sweatshirt and uh, shrinks know, it deliberately so that they can... Wear put it. to bed the idea that women spend so much more than men. <laughs> who, I just is, who, is, who is insinuating to, they, they did? I mean, that's typically the stereotype. Oh, and I just want to point here. out that's exactly right. Just want to make Precisely. that very clear. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now joining us, and this is a really important conversation for you on radio and television, because Scott Clemens, with 30-plus years of Brown Brothers Harriman, synthesizes in all the eco-babble into the market strategy. And your foundation, Scott Clemens, is everybody calm down about inflation. 
If you're briefing Chairman Powell today and the 47 other Fed speakers, how do you tell them to calm down about inflation? Um, I think it pays to be a simple-minded economist, given all of the moving parts that you've laid out here at the top of the hour. I would remind the Fed, far be it for me to lecture the Fed, but I would remind the Fed that the price of everything and the price of anything is simply the interaction of supply and demand. And that the Fed has an ability to influence demand through monetary policy, but the Fed does not have the ability to influence supply. So to the degree that lingering inflation is a result of lingering supply chain disruptions, the Fed should not get over eager and raise interest rates too much to try to choke off inflation that ends up not being demand driven to begin with. I think that's the story for inflation and the Fed for the balance of this year. Scott, let's talk about the story for this market. Marko Kalanovic of JP Morgan and the investment bank saying we're pricing in too much recession risk. Just two part question. One, do you agree? And two, how do you measure that? I think that's right. I think the market is too pessimistic about the risk of inflation. In an environment where we're adding jobs at you know, roughly, let's call it half a million jobs a month, net wages are rising, combine those things together, keeping in mind that personal consumption is 68% of GDP. Going to 23, 24, yeah, there's a recession out there somewhere, but I don't see that in the near term. The backdrop is just too strong. Where I think the confusion or the anxiety arises is we're still in the midst of this transition of economic leadership away from the policy support of easy monetary policy and a lot of fiscal spending 12, 18, 24 months ago back to a more normal driver of economic activity. That's naturally anxiety-inducing. I get it. But I think people are looking at the glass as being half empty. There are a lot of half full notions out there as well. Well, are half full notions something that would encourage the Fed to hike further, leading to half empty? And I know this sounds like a parody, a parody of what it is to be gloomy. But honestly, this is what a lot of people are thinking, that the, that the momentum that we're seeing in a lot of the economic data is a bad thing because it means the Fed has to do more. What do you say to counter that? Well, Lisa, I think the, the answer to that is what's really important, and this is a subtle nuance, but I think this is the source of a lot of the volatility in financial markets. The important thing is not that the Fed is raising interest rates, but why they're raising interest rates. And admittedly, that's very subjective. But if the Fed on one hand is raising interest rates out of growing confidence that this transition in leadership is taking place, that's a pretty benign and even supportive outcome. If on the other hand, the market concludes that inflation is running away and the Fed is playing catch up, that's a very disruptive outcome. And I think the push and pull between those two notions is what drives market volatility not just day to day, but sometimes even hour to hour. We've, we've all seen these days in which the market opens strongly and closes in the red or, or vice versa. Hopefully today's uh, opening holds. But I think that's likely to continue for some time to come. We're telling our clients to get used to the kind of intraday volatility that has characterized the beginning of this year. It's not going to go away anytime soon. So given that, where's your highest conviction right now, Scott? Well, with the rise in interest rates, we've begun allocating capital into traditional fixed income for the first time in close to a decade. For our clients at Brown Lewis Harriman, taxable clients <clears throat> municipal bonds are, uh, are offering a better trade-off of risk and return than we've seen in quite some time. Beyond that, the, the carnage in equity markets has left a lot to find. I take a very simple measure and look at the percentage of stocks in an index trading below their 50-day moving average. 
As of last night's close, 78% of the S&P was below its 50-day moving average, 96% of the Russell 2000, and 99.95% of the NASDAQ is trading below its 50-day moving average. That doesn't mean that everything is cheap, but it certainly means that among yeah. that carnage, there are plenty of good trade-offs of risk and return. Scott, let's think positive. Let's say you go down in flames with your inflation call. Instead of getting 2 to 3% inflation, you fail, you're wrong, and we get 4.2% inflation by the end of the year. That is a sea change from where we are right now. What does the stock market do if Clemens is wrong? That's probably more disruptive for the stock market if Clemens turns out to be wrong. I, I think, though, at the same time, the trajectory of inflation is important. If at yeah. the end of this year, the inflation number still starts with a four, but we're headed in the right direction, that's different. In that environment, I would want to own companies that have pricing power, companies that can pass through those higher input costs to their end customers. That, that tends to be associated with brand loyalty, essential products and services, repeat customers, all the kinds of quality markers of a company. Not that they're immune from an inflationary environment like that, but they're a lot more resistant to it. Great to catch up, Scott. As always, a different perspective on things at the moment. Scott Clements of Brown Brothers Harriman. Right now, we are all aware it is yield up and price down. That is the mix, the toxic mix for something rare in the last decades, a bond bear market. Winnie Caesar's living this as global head of strategy at credit sites. And she knows, well, you can talk about spreads and you can analyze loans in different categories. And the answer is price is down. And she joins us uh, this morning. I want to look at the Bloomberg Total Aggregate Index, Total Return Aggregate, Full Faith and Credit uh, Index. And the answer is we're down 12% in price, 7% analyzed. Can you state it's a bond bear market? It feels like we're in a bond bear market. And from talking to the credit investors that I speak to on a regular basis, they are certainly seeing a lot of signs of kind of continued negativity. Don't fight the Fed is definitely the mantra in the bond market, and the Fed seems to be on a very hawkish course to continue to hike rates. That being said, there are some signs of kind of constructive positivity on, on the credit market side of things. Right. Well, no, but in the equity market, I claw back on growth. I call, claw back on use of cash. How do you claw back from a 12% loss? Frankly, in IG, it could be an 18% loss. What's the strategy to claw back in fixed income? So in fixed income, we've had two phases of the sell-off. First, it was all duration. We saw higher rated, longer duration assets sell off as we saw mm -hmm. that big sensitivity to the move in yields. Now with everybody very concerned about growth, we're moving into the credit risk phase of the sell-off. And this means you have to be very selective in terms of where you are positioning your risk. And that is actually a very good sign for these dedicated credit investors who have longer term views and longer term mandates rather than kind of a three to six month time horizon like we usually see in the equity market. Winnie, with about an hour to go before we get retail sales, when you take a look at the corporate fundamentals, which sectors are starting to feel the biggest hit from some of the weakness that at least we saw in Walmart, if not beyond? So we're definitely seeing a shift away from some of the COVID pandemic darlings, some of the consumer staples and retails side of things. But we are also seeing a continued improvement in energy fundamentals. While we might not hold energy prices where they currently are, 
the levels are still going to be quite strong for cash flow and credit investors. And we're also seeing some idiosyncratic risk in some sectors, things like high-yield healthcare and high-yield telecom. We're seeing some single-name stories that are really driving outside spread widening in those specific sectors. There's sort of an existential question uh, facing credit right now. Yes, borrowing costs are a lot higher, but companies don't really have to borrow. And if they don't have to borrow, does it matter, right? I mean, does it actually affect their bottom line? When do companies have to start borrowing again and actually locking in these uh, yields that are incredibly high relative to where they were a year ago? That's a great point, Lisa. And I would also say the yields are high relative to one year ago. But let's not forget that one year ago was the absolute rock bottom for borrowing costs, a level that we're probably not going to see again, at least for a long period of time. And so even if borrowing costs have moved up by, call it 100, 150 basis points in investment grade, from a long-term perspective, that is still a very low level of borrowing cost. And in fact, the amount of no issue that we've seen this year has been quite robust because a lot of companies are looking at those current borrowing costs and saying, well, you know, this is actually still not a terrible time to be um, continuing to add debt to the balance sheet, continuing to refinance transactions. And then in the high yield market, that's where we've seen the most liability management really giving a lot of, of these issuers a reprieve from having to go to the capital markets. And we probably have another 12 to 24 months before there's really a lot of urgency, especially for the higher rated parts of the high yield market, yeah. the double B issuers. Winnie, this presents a real issue for the Fed. And we were talking about this on the consumer side with uh, with Michelle Meyer of MasterCard. But if a lot of these companies are immune to more substantial Fed rate hikes, at least at a financing level, how high can the Fed raise rates before it presents a credit issue? So I think that the way the Fed looks at the credit markets is functioning of capital markets. Are deals pricing is there investor demand? And for the investment grade market in particular, deals are still pricing, albeit at pretty steep new issue concessions relative to last year. And order books have been relatively solid. So I think the Fed is looking at the investment grade market and saying, there are clearly some technical challenges going on in this market, but from a borrowing perspective and pure liquidity flowing, we can continue to hike rates. Now we're in kind of the approach to the danger zone, 150 basis points of spread. You usually don't hold that for very very long in the IG market, either you break one way or the other. And if you break to 200, that's when the Fed has to take a little bit of a pause and say, our capital market's still functioning. Winnie, wonderful to get your views. Winnie Caesar there of Credit Size. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations, and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.